0: From TMP to TTNG For sure the cure and those tired meme jeans Hella Kinsella and the promise ring Sunny day real estate and rights this spring Prince Twinkle Daddy's help keep the dream alive I constantly thank God for Algernon And Remo Christie from drive. Mineral snowing high tide hotelier and more. Rio limo only consists of the DC emotive hardcore.
1: Welcome everyone to episode 23 of the E Word. I am your uh, your host Ellie reporting live from Las Vegas. I just got back here. I just did a manicure with my mom. Actually, I got some nice black nail polish. Um, <laughs> I'm here right now with uh, my co-host Kyle. Are you are you in Madison right now, Kyle? I'm still in try? Madison. All right, awesome. And we also have probably the most special guest we've had so far on the podcast. We have Ian Cohen for you, What's up, you Hi. how are you
2: uh i'm doing all right man I, now i gotta live up to the being the most special yes <laughs> it's, it's a lot of pressure like I, I mean do i gotta i i guess i should go run to my closet right now and get the um Put on my Jets to Basil shirt from Donut Friend in LA. You know? Oh, I'm amazing! I, I only one, but like, am I am I am I really doing like, am, am I really doing this uh, subject justice? If I'm not like to- totally in character right now, um, no, it's cool. It, it's I'm I'm you know I, I'm I'm flattered to be a part of this, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, you know seeing where this all takes us. Because I mean, when I think about like what emo pop really means. I mean, this could go in so many different directions and, you know, I have my idea and, you know, like my perspective from my age and i um, interested in seeing what y'all have to say about it as well. So let's, let's do this thing.
1: Uh, Ian I actually just introduced uh, the topic for this episode, which is we're going to do, we're going to try and do our, a deep dive on emo pop. Uh, probably the most misunderstood of all the emo subgenres. So, I don't know. That includes like crabcore and uh, screamo. I understand. I understand <laughs> crabcore and screamo perfectly. I okay. don't know. I yeah, about like on a mass
2: level, and you know what? That's cool. That's yeah. that's we're here for.
1: <laughs> I guess that 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 should be our first question, then so how do we define emo pop?
2: Well, I would say that it's um, a question of whether it's a matter of. Uh, about emo bands making pop music or like pop music with like emo, I guess, sprinkling, if you will, because uh, there's like the emo pop that I'm assuming, uh, you know, y'all want me to talk about given my age and my interests where it's like where emo evolved from like emotional hardcore to something that, um, kind of meshed with the pop punk and melodic hardcore, music that it was always interacting with and became something that was commercially viable. Whereas if you go to your average emo night, um, and you know, not the one Tom Mullen or like we O'Neill runs, but like, um, you know, the, the, the ones that are like super duper popular and like, local yeah.
1: Classics,
2: um, you know, when has... I
1: go to like Jimmy eat Wednesday and Austin and they play like Chiodos, Yeah. Yeah.
2: Things like, yeah. So it would be then things like, um, you know fallout boy or or panic or uh, and, and just stuff that's like pop music but it's packaged in a way that makes it seem emo so i think what we're kind of seeing here isn't really a specific genre but i guess much like emo itself um, takes a trajectory and evolves and mutates and uh, goes in cyclical trends but um, you know if we're getting if we get if we're really going to start what I think, um, you know, leads us to where we are now. It it probably has to start with like the, the fracturing of cap and jazz into like Joan of Arc, which is like the esoteric, uh, really artsy. And I'm sure Tim can sell himself and call it pretentious, uh, aspects of that scene. Then you have like American football, which like leans more to the post rock and, um, uh, instrumental technique. And then the promise ring, which, in some ways can be considered like maybe the big bang of it all. Um, Right. Yeah, it was there. There are certain like qualities of it that makes it, you know, like the vocals, the subject matter, the way the guitars uh, play, you know, play amongst the rhythm section, like the rhythm section itself being very jumpy and jittery as opposed to straight up pop punk, which is more like power chords and uh, straight rhythms. And um, I think that's sort of kind of where it starts. Um, I, think if we're looking at the first you know emo album to ever come out on a major label if we're if we're really seeing it from that perspective like because i don't know if like 30 degrees everywhere would be considered an emo pop album uh nothing yeah
1: that that about. album's almost more post-punk mm-hmm, yeah like, that's, when i listen to it yeah. they got like a one chord songs on it and stuff like it's a really almost more experimental album yeah. yeah and it's like
2: produced very raw and there's still like that almost nappy aspect to it but um, you know, yes. Like what? What I thought the first like emo pop, like the first major label one was, and um, one of the ones was not well, Nothing Beautiful goes on J Tree, which is by no means a major label.
1: Well, uh, I don't. I didn't necessarily say that it it had to be on a major label oh, because okay. me, emo pop isn't. Uh, it like I do think it is a genre. Like I do think it is a sound and not necessarily like uh, just emo that is pop music, right? Okay. Um so when i when i was when I was thinking about this, I was thinking it has to be either nothing feels good or if you want to make the argument that it came a bit earlier a Jawbreaker's twenty four hour revenge therapy' don't which I don't, think let, is, like, don't cool. let
2: Blake find out we're calling his uh jawbreaker emo. <laughs> like uh I, I, the I, the jawbreaker show that I saw most recently like he uh, like he did this in l a and i'm I'm told he did this basically at every show It's just like Spend a good portion of the stage banner talking shit about emo and uh, like how his band wasn't one. And I would say with uh you know that one, um I don't know. Like, I, I it's almost like maybe even static prevails. Um, I like was just think about that. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, I mean, with which one was your jawbreaker choice for like the first? uh It was, was 24 it? hour. Okay, 24 hour. Yeah, that could perhaps be it. But I think they're more, that's
1: the one with like. The most concise songs, uh, yeah. the most like sing-alongs, I think, are on that, that album.
2: I think with 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 um, I think they're just kind of more of a Bay Area punk band um, that just kind of got grandfathered the emo against their you know best against their wishes. And you know when they got signed to DGC and like had Rob Cavallo produce Dear You, I think they even back then were seen as more well, maybe we got the next Green Day on our hands. Like I would, but like uh, Static. Pro- fails to me it, I, th- I believe it precedes nothing feels good by a year and that yeah. is jimmy Eat world was like i mean you listen to it first off it's on a major label like network secondly it's definitely like emo like you could put it out right now and it's it's the most revival uh jimmy Eat world album um you could hear the kind of the uh, the link to sunny day real estate in there, with just the way there's like the twinkle parts and like then the heavy parts, and um, you know the kind of jagged palm muted guitars and like the two vocals competing against each other. Like those yeah. are those are those are aspects of Jimmy World sound um, that really that connected them to that world. So I, I think they were just like kind of the first emissary from like actual emo to make a pop album and now granted compared to what came afterwards for them like that's a pretty punk rock record or like more yeah. traditional <laughs> so but I, I but i think if we're really talking like emo pop i think nothing feels good is really the kind of model for what came after like Jimmy world kind of existed more or less in their own lane but like the prompt like with what they did on nothing feels good um still the the rhythm section made it more emo than pop punk the guitars themselves like you know not really power cordy it was like in that open c tuning and the vocals were not whiny they were like more like lispy and like um you know the lyrics themselves were more abstract than pop punk which is extremely topical um so if people were to like say like what is the definitive first you know first generation emo pop album, I think nothing feels good is uh, as good a place to start as any. But what about
1: yeah, and like, that's, get up, that's that's the argument I made.
2: To get up mm-hmm. certainly, I mean it's more a matter of like what the chronology is because uh yeah. you know yeah. four mile, absolutely uh nothing to write home about or something to write home about, sorry. Um that one, I mean, that is also like, you know, canon. For sure. Um, sure. Yeah. Even more so, like maybe that's not the first one, but that's like probably the definitive article of it because they had a much more um classic pop template than the promise ring it was still kind of more punk like you know get a kids did emerge from like you know kansas city like hardcore to a certain degree but i mean the songs on like uh like vagrant records also i would say is more the like that took emo pop to what we think of it as now, as mm-hmm. opposed to polyvinyl or J Tree.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. I and I would also say because you know the you know, like you said, uh, the Get Up Kids emerged from Kansas City hardcore, like to a to a certain extent by like James Dewey's being in Coalesce, but beyond that, I don't think uh, most members really had a hardcore pedigree. And the Promise rank, they came from uh, Ten Boy Summer, um, yeah, yeah. and none and none left standing. Also, I believe. Uh, who were, like, straight-up, uh, like, actual hardcore bands. They were on, like, Food Not Bombs comps for Revolition and, and such. And so you had much more of, like, this raw aesthetic attached to this almost a uh, doo-wop sensibility, plus, like, using guitars uh, more as, like, texture than propulsion. Okay. So I think Nothing Feels Good was much more, like, sophisticated in that regard than what the Get Up kids were doing, which was yeah. just, like... Straight pop. up pop with the spiky uh, exterior. Yeah. Yeah.
3: When we talk about like defining emo pop, I guess my immediate question is is emo pop, uh, is that like symbiotic with like Midwest emo? Like is, is that like an interchangeable term to
2: an extent? It, it is if we're like talking about the roots of
1: it because. Yeah. It's talking it, about like God's reflex. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that like if we're talking about. Um, well, I mean, Midwest emo. I mean, it's not. It's there's. It compasses so much more. I mean, we're talking like. Then you gotta like think about bands like Boys Life and like what Braid were doing. And like I wouldn't call Braid uh, an emo pop band, but I think that um, what was going on with like, Get Up Kids. Like I think when we start to go on that track, um, that leads us to you know New Jersey and uh, I guess like Florida to uh, you know a degree as well. And um, so it may have like. That it may have started there, but I think as and and to this day, I think it continues. You know, emo. Can you really separate emo pop from emo itself? Because I think the um, it lends itself so well to pop music. Because like when you think about like what pop music tends to provide, it's like very youth centric, like lyrical concerns, and also the vocals tend to skew a bit younger as well. So It, it was just kind of a natural fit. Mm-hmm. Um, like you have to ask yourself, like, can you? I mean, can you like separate? Can you separate pop from emo really ever?
1: Well, Kyle, so you're asking if you if you'd like connect emo pop to Midwest emo, and I think you the first wave you would to some extent, but yeah. as as emo pop goes on, I almost think that it's more connected to hardcore than it is to the Midwest sound. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. every single every single one that saves the day and. Fallout Boy and My Chemical Romance and all of those bands were super Sunday. strong. Yeah. Taking back Sunday. What's like one of the number one influences for every single one of those bands? Lifetime. Lifetime. Right? <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Lifetime to the point where they released a record on decadence, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> just in case and, just in case we were concerned that like the conversation wasn't quite granular enough, you know.
1: <laughs> to to me that kind of betray something cool because i actually wrote about this in an article i just published for no echo but i feel like emo pop and pop punk in the early mid 2000s was kind of this avenue through which hardcore kind of affected the mainstream pop culture at large you know thursday and afi were also kind of using that mm-hmm. um and they they were also still kind of like repping hardcore like in all those early Fall Out boy videos i don't know if you can if you've noticed, but Andy Hurley is wearing, like, a Seven Angels, Seven Plagues shirt. (laughs) And, like, Thursday has the video of the Kid in the Bane shirt, and AFI, like, uh, they have that side project Extremist. um, Dashboard Confessional used to open up for, like, Poison the Well and Shy Halud. So I always thought that emo pop was more connected to hardcore, and then later on you kind of had, like, like, Hey Mercedes and May and the Jealous Sound, like people from, you know, the older bands like Braid and Knapsack kind of doing something uh, more emo pop, but still kind of indebted to uh, the the late 90s sound. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, like, Knapsack, that's, to me, like, pop music in a lot of ways, just mm-hmm. like... Yeah,
1: Knapsack's but, also one of those early emo pop bands,
2: for sure. Yeah, exactly, but, you know, they... They're from, like, what, Las Vegas or something like that, so oh, they. it's kind of hard to see them as being, like, part of that same scene. But, yeah, I think that's an interesting point about how, how the late, like, the more pop it got in the later part, in in, in, the, in the 2000s, the more hardcore infiltrated it, you know? Yeah. Because, like, yeah, all those guys, like, and y- y- all, those, all those bands just, like, repped it, like, super-duper hard, like, whether it was wearing the T-shirts or whatever, or... Sign, you know, giving bands like a certain chance and um, you know you see it now it's like um, with like Dashboard Confessional I mean you see like someone like Julian Baker who had opened up for like uh, you know Touche Amore and things like that I think you're seeing kind of that repeat
1: yeah and now you also have like pop punk and emo labels that, like run for cover uh, yeah. putting out Fury, Fury you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. pure, pure Noise, pure doing, noise. Uh, knock yeah. loose and the crossover's happening again and oh, yeah. I also like we could observe the crossover in like the 2010s too when you had code orange and self-defense family and the world is and tiger's jaw all did that split you know which i think we talked about last episode too
2: yeah it's like of course they're of course like these uh sounds you know like like hardcore and like emo pop and whatever are gonna find like similar avenues because it's not like they're gonna get signed to like matador or whatever so uh yeah exactly it's kind of a survival tactic and it's, I mean, it's you. It's youth centric. Um, it's youth centric rock music. So it's, you know, that's it's that's that's where you're going to see a lot of that stuff crossing over. You
1: know, so my Chemical Romance and Fall Out Boy. I think we can both agree, or or all three of us can agree that they were the the bands that um, ki- kind of solidified emo as a nationally recognized buzzword, right?
2: I don't know because I mean, if you look, I, I remember like the first article I had read in a major magazine about it came out in 2001 uh, or around that time. With and, and I think it was Spin because it it, it covered you know not just the j Tree and Vagrant stuff, but also like Jimmy Eat World, you know, with Bleed American becoming um, you know a, a like a platinum record, and also Dashboard, and also you know Weezer coming back with the Green Album that year, and Pickerton kind of getting. Grandfathered into it. I would say that's that,
1: true, but sorry. But as far as like
2: when I, when I, as a 38 as a year old, like man who works in a non music field, like when I say I like emo music, like what I'm prepared for people to think of is My Chemical Romance, Ball Out Boy, Hot Topic, like, you know, Sweet yeah. Haircuts. Yeah. Yes, in the sense that like what made it become like a pop phenomenon, like I absolutely like. They, that that is what, especially when like because I work with people who are for the most part in their mid to early mid to late twenties who, you know, that was their the music of their teens like the pop, like pop music what what, what 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 you hear when you go on the radio or turn on MTV or whatever so yeah, right.
1: right. So let's let's look at that that time period, in which MCR and Fall Out Boy were huge. Let's say let's say two thousand three to two thousand six. Right, okay. that's, yeah, that that's peak those years. Uh, what was happening in the world of non-mainstream emo, excluding screamo? Oh. What, what was going on?
2: Uh, that was that was the time of like uh, Dejan Tito and you know, Thursday and Thrice. Under um, oath. Under oath. Yeah.
1: Okay, Falter non-mainstream heights. emo. Oh. Well, <laughs> let's. let's I, yeah. Where, like, okay. Well, are we
2: talking about like cursive or? Uh,
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm saying like, like I think that was like the last gasps of like of yeah. Elm stuff.
2: You're
0: you're
1: right. I
2: mean that that era 2003 2006. Like there's a that was like when you know the Promise Ring made Woodwater Save the day made in Reverie. Um, you know the Fire Theft came around. Um, yeah. and that was like. The time where the old guard like tried to make like indie rock albums, and they were just they just like oh, and also on a wire by the Get Up Kids, like that whole era, like really was like an end of like that was an end of an era. You know, there's a lot of like all the records I just mentioned are awesome, mm-hmm. but they not you know they, what happened is like they really alienated um the old fan base and didn't make. The new ones, and you see that repeated nowadays. Whenever, for the most part, whenever like you know an emo band tries to you know cross into indie rock, <laughs> you, you get the sense like yeah, they're not trying to hear that. So yeah, yeah. I, I, that was I, I think things got more harsh and like and, and like it was definitely more hardcore as opposed to like the softer kind of more genial Midwest sound in 2003,
1: and 2006. So I do think the Midwest stuff was still around because you had like. Uh, Cross My Heart and and Branston and Benton Falls. Yeah. Like, kind of mainstream stuff right there. Not well. mainstream, but like I feel like, like in that time they were kind of almost ghettoized. You know? Like that was like, oh you're still you're still into the Midwest emo thing, I guess like check these fans out. You know? Like it was <laughs> a very specific niche. Um and that like two thousand six is like arguably where the quote-unquote emo revival would have started with, you know, Algernon and uh, Look Mexico putting out their earliest stuff. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, that's I think up, up, up down, down, definitely. too, right?
2: But that's also, like, when Devil and God came out, too, and on yeah. you know, A City by the Light. And so that's where, like, the emo pop also got kind of serious as well. Yeah, I mean, there you see it splintering off there as well, but that's,
1: like, really probably peak Fueled by Ramen. Yeah, and then I think 2007, it all broke down. All Time Low took over. Forever the Sickest Kids took over. Cute is What We aim For took over. And these were bands that kind of like aped the sheen, like the superficial elements of what would have been happening earlier, but just Disney-fied it. Made it, really <laughs> Made it real shiny and clean for mass consumption. Didn't really have any of the same like hardcore or emo roots as the earlier bands. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you also had like heavier music was becoming popular than ever, I think, because, uh, you know, like we were talking about Under Oath, right? And Mm -hmm. Norma Jean got big and somehow every time I die got big and Attack Attack and the Devil Wears Prada and later on of Mice and Men. Like this, this was definitely a time where like you could make a ton of money playing music that, you know, 10 years before you would have had to, make like 20 bucks a night opening for strong arm or something. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it. It's it like when you talk about like m- of mice and men and like all that, it's like, man, that's like, to me, that's
1: like, I would call that almost like more,
2: more like metal core, like the house of blues circuit.
1: Exactly. <laughs> well, that is, that is what, that is what it is. But people yeah, are and, still Yeah. And, and
2: I'm glad that like, I'm having this conversation with y'all because like, I mean like, for, like let's talk from like 2006 to like 2009 or 10 or whatever. Like, I am so clueless as to what was going because, like, fun fact, I worked at APA uh, in 2006 when you know one of the guys, uh, Andrew Stein, was there repping a lot of the Fuel by Ramen bands, and I would hear what was it, the Hush sound, and mm-hmm. like, yep. what was that name of that fake Paramore band? It was like Hey Monday or something like that. Yeah, 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 and, and I would and 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 I would hear this stuff and. I'm I'm just like, wow, this is so fucking not for me. And and at that point, I'm just like, okay, well, time for me to check out. I'm gonna go, you know, do just go straight up into like, you know, the National and Oakerville River and like that's what I like I don't need to pay attention to this anymore.
1: I remember the uh, band that actually sunk it in the mainstream for me was Cash Cash. I listened to that <laughs> like a song by Cash Cash and I was like, what in the fuck is this? Remember <laughs> millionaires
2: yeah. Um, uh, do we still, like, haters? No. Like, this stuff is super this stuff is super I mean this stuff is pop and it's I mean in a way it is kind of what we're talking about and, like I'm always you know worried that like when I like talk like I sound like old or like a hater like you know because this is what the kids were listening to and I mean it evolved in a way and yeah that's great. I guess they were doing some new in some way interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean that at that point I'm just like I'm like I can't find any foothold here. I I, I just can't. Well, like, <laughs> and so like I checked out never to return until like someone told me, Hey, check out these bands on top shelf, dude. It's like, whoa, whoa they still make shit like this. Where the fuck has this been on
0: all my life, you know?
3: But that was like an especially wild time because like like wasn't There's it? Still much. <laughs> yeah, like Forever the Sickest Kids were like signed to like a huge deal with having four songs on MySpace. Yeah, yeah. like if like you heard the
1: production on that first Forever the Sickest Kids album. It's like literally flawless. It's like <laughs> on par with like the first Rage Against the Machine album. Like flawless production. <laughs> it was it was just like they were people were just finding bands that were seemingly
3: nowhere and just existed with like a myspace page like they weren't like touring or anything they just picked them out and then marketed them or put them in the fucking journeys music video like, <laughs> slideshow <laughs> you know
1: <laughs> i've heard some good music in zoomies don't <laughs> yo i
3: actually heard silver sun pickups for the first time in a journeys and i went home and downloaded it off of kazaa
1: my buddy, my buddy William works at Zoomies, and I guess they put uh, The Summer Ends by American Football on one of the mixes. Uh, uh, that was uh, in store.
3: Starbucks when I was working there, be- before... Shit. Re- that yeah. was before they reunited, too.
0: Really? Yeah. yeah. They
1: play, uh, play Seven at the coffee shop that I work at. Huh. I, I <laughs> think they also play, like, local age and stuff, too, though, so... I think hey. it's just, like, the bottom-of-the-barrel 90s stuff.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, for fuck's
1: sake, man. You're gonna, like, talk... You're going to bring me on to this and talk shit about local age,
3: man? I can, no, I, I love I local can go for better I don't think, with
1: local age. I don't think you're going to... I'm saying that they were like... They, they were not a high-level 90s oh. band. Well, than, yeah, because like, they I opened up for Metallica local.
3: for like a local talent uh, yes. contest. <laughs> you remember
2: that? I, I interviewed Scott recently uh, for Stereo Gum. That was like one of the best conversations, man. Like that guy's just seen a lot of life. And yeah, I mean... In your guys career if you ever get the chance man just interview anytime an opportunity comes up to interview somebody from like the 90s like all rock like or any period of uh rock music where there was money around do it like they'll <laughs> always have good stuff to say like nowadays like you talk about bands oh, DIY so i like no tell me about the time where you know dean DeLeo from stone temple pilots hung out with you and you guys like, got high and watched Saturday Night Live, you know, that that's the stuff that interests me. <laughs> oh, wow, what uh, more? Like, Not expected.
1: <laughs> so, real quick, before we move on, because I feel like uh, we're about to come up on how emo pop has kind of, like, helped evolve the modern emo scene as we know it today. Uh, did Kyle, did you have, like, any specific topics that I missed that you wanted to bring up?
3: Like, these emo pop mount rushmore bands that we talk about like the get up kids promise ring like like nothing feels good comes out and like before that they're all touring together playing house shows like i know in madison there's a flyer somewhere that's like mineral the promise ring and the get up kids at a house um (laughs) but then like i know get up Kids and promise ring both opened up for weezer in arenas so it's like was. And I have no clue, like, what was the come-up? Like, was it, like, house show to, like, fucking clubs to arenas? Or... It
1: was Vagrant. It was Vagrant Records. They pushed yeah. it to get up kids so goddamn hard. Yeah. They sunk so much money into that band. I I literally think that's what that's how, like, they went from house shows to arenas overnight. Because, you know, when you read, uh, Andy Greenwald has that book, Nothing Feels Good. Mm-hmm. And there's the whole whole section on Vagrant Records where... They were talking to Rich, and he was just like, yeah, we sunk every single penny, like, money that we did not have yeah. into the get-up bids to take this band to the next level. And it worked for a good couple years there. Yeah. I don't know what, what happened to Vagrant, by the way. I kind of, like, It's, make- it's exist, like a weird man. label now. It's your now. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not like a Janet, Janet Jackson, Jackson and, record. Like yeah, a few years who, I, I,
3: Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros were on that label. And, yes, it um, was the
2: 1975 for a minute. Really? Yeah, the whole <laughs> Steady put out a record yeah, on yeah. Vagrant. Yeah, stay positive on that. Yeah, it's uh, Vagrant Records, like, I think got just um, engulfed or absorbed into, um, you know, it got absorbed into a bigger, like, Warner. And you know, they are putting out,
1: like, right? Hardy
2: records, man.
1: Yeah. Like, so,
2: yeah, it's well, just Super like.
1: Well, Vision kind of, like, yeah. oh, saw where it was going and just ran with it, you know. What were the what were some of the other like cuz J Tree also got like assimilated. They got swapped. Well, yeah.
3: well, they now sold now themselves like, to Epitaph. Epitaph.
2: Now yeah, they're just like kind of the merch or whatever. They tried to do a couple reboots. But you know, there was like Equal Vision and like Polyvinyl had, you know, it's Polyvinyl like had a bit of a an influence on that, but I would say they're more like kind of trad, you know, Midwestern. But um what would yeah, yeah e- e- Hopeless. What was the other one? Uh, uh Victory
1: Records. Uh, fearless. <laughs> yeah, Fearless, um, yeah. Hopeless. I mean, vict- Victory is still somehow doing okay, despite it the fact that every, <laughs> well, every band who has ever been on Victory has spent their career on Victory trying to get off of Victory desperately. Yeah. Except, except for, except for Bayside. Bayside. Oh, yeah. Well, Bayside... Uh, Okay, this this is my like hottest take. I think like the first couple Bayside albums just sound like much more polished Promise Ring. Uh, there's some like
3: positive. there's some like New York swagger to them though. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's true. That's true. But I just like I think it's in the vocals. I just feel like if like if Davey von Boland just like let loose, but also took some singing lessons, he'd sound a lot <laughs> like Anthony Ranieri.
3: They both kind of sound <laughs> like they like ate like, a carton of cottage cheese before they went (laughs) to the booth.
2: Yeah, I just can't can't ever envision, like, Davey Von Boland being from Queens, you know? (laughs)
1: Like, that just doesn't compute, man. (laughs) Davey Von Boland could only survive in Queens if he wore a sailor hat.
2: (laughs) I'm just, like, having trouble with, like, Davey Von Boland, who, like, now runs an accounting practice in Milwaukee. (laughs) Wow. promise ring is on his LinkedIn page by the way
1: That's amazing
2: incredible yeah when I when I I interviewed the promise ring um before a new year's eve show I believe it was like 2015 and they're just like this is it like there's no like that Davey was is so about his accounting practice and his kids and like he's like you could just tell like there is they are not doing the reunion which you know god bless them Mm -hmm. um yeah, but it's just, like, that, That like, you know, a lot of those guys, you know, Jim Pryor and, like, you know, Mike Kinsella have kids and, like, you know, obligations. But, like, Davey, that the problem is that you are not getting them back on the road, like, ever. And side note. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, okay. okay. Emo Pop died 2007, yes. right? Is that roughly what we want to say? I think around 2009... Like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, we start to see not not just the emo revival bands, the the earlier ones popping up, um, but we also see kind of like these hardcore and emo influenced, very strongly DIY pop punk bands happening. Mm-hmm. Man Overboard and Title Fight and the Wonder Years and Fireworks. I uh, feel like yeah, those those were all great bands, and you can very clearly see the influence of early emo pop in those bands. I mean. The Wonder Years like reference the Get Up Kids kind of a lot. Like they even, I think they even like do an excerpt of the lyrics from I'll Catch You in one song. And I know uh, at the end of Suburbia, the last words of uh, Suburbia I've given you all are uh, "shoulder to the wheel," and it was produced by Steve Evans, who also produced Through Being Cool. I thought that was like a really neat an- Easter egg there. Um, and I think like when you tit when you take early emo revival and that kind of DIY pop punk stuff that was happening. And smash it together you get modern baseball yeah Yep. You know, modern baseball i think we're doing kind of like an emo pop revival thing <laughs> does that make sense
2: i think so um you know you look at bands like that and to maybe to a certain extent you blew it as well um
1: yeah later you blew it i think yeah, yeah
2: but um yeah i think modern baseball like and it's interesting how i, I remember like talking about about this before like recently just how a lot of like punk or emo or hardcore or whatever like it compared to actual pop and like RB and hip hop like it doesn't seem to evolve like you know, oh this stuff reminds me of the 90s but the way you bring it up it, it shows just how how it evolves like more incrementally and it's like a blend that doesn't seem like radical at the beginning but when we look back on it it's like yeah, modern baseball could not, not exist without or like you know the Wonder Years could not exist without the Get Up Kids but also, you know, or other forms of pop punk or like blink or whatever and it and same with title fight. Um mm-hmm.
1: yeah, title fight. If you listen to some of the early stuff like if you I think Evander on Last Thing You Forget is just like three ripped off blink songs smashed together.
3: Yeah. yeah. But at the same time <laughs> like these bands all, all kind of seem like they they like had done their digging and their research and their listening to like draw the influences. Like it wasn't yeah. just like let me copy your homework bullshit.
2: Well, yeah, most band like most people who start playing guitar, and I think that's the um, the part that makes emo or whatever you want to call them bands kind of se- separate separate from like indie rock or whatever. It's like when these bands get started, modern baseball, title fight, etc. They're like young kids who just probably learned their first Blink-182 songs. And so, you know, they they start from there and then they evolve and they become, you know, they integrate more mature like indie rock influences, whereas you start to see some bands who like are, you know, they start the band at 22 years old after they've had their, um, you know, after they've like discovered the Smiths or whatever. So that's, yeah, it's like that early title fight stuff, that early modern baseball stuff that really, Still, in a way, dictates how they're perceived, even as much as they can evolve. Like if you if you ever start out with a band like you know that covers Blink One Eighty Two songs, you probably should break up and start a new band under a different name. <laughs> if you take it seriously, that's you
1: know? uh, I think that's literally what All Time Low did. <laughs> <laughs> they literally did start as a Blink cover band. They had that's uh, they got their name from a New Found Glory song. Yeah, yeah. I think I think modern baseball is like the two the two sides of the coin of the Philly scene, like the Wonder Years smashed together with snowing,
2: you know. And yeah. wearing Crocs on stage in shorts, <laughs>
1: baseball. <hat. laughs> and I I feel like all of the bands that are like happening right now that are hype right now, Mom Jeans and Prince Daddy, oh, like yeah. owe so much of the. A, a debt of their sound to modern baseball. Like it's how like, how how,
2: how fuck how fucked up is it that we're like I mean modern like obviously we're speaking about modern baseball in the past tense because you know they've been on hiatus for like past couple of years, but it's like how it's like so crazy that they, they're like elder statesmen now, right? Um, like we can look at them as like a formative influence of a band that's starting right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I mean they started in 2010. That's eight fucking years ago at this point. Like, that's light years that's millennia in hardcore yeah seriously
0: yeah
2: (laughs) yeah it's like all these bands that are celebrating their 10th anniversaries now like you know touche menzingers and algernon like with the release it's like 2008 like i mean most most of like and that's the interesting part is like most of the emo bands that like are legendary or whatever like with the exception of like jimmy world like they they broke up like yeah Mm -hmm. like they didn't they, they they don't have like a a Yola Tango s discography of like ten deep, where you can like, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, they made like two, one, they made like one that was like awesome, and then like maybe one that sucked, and they broke up, like, you know. It's, but yeah, modern baseball like it. Bands I mean, like mom jeans and like uh, Prince Daddy and like whatever you want to call it, Sparkle Punk, Weedemo Mimo, whatever.
1: I, I I invented the term Sparkle Punk, and you like. Gave me a shout oh. out in like a couple years. <laughs> so I always appreciated that.
2: Oh, awesome. Yeah. But like, they're not paying for it. Man.
1: Yeah, I that's... think at one point, like, also like two years ago, I wrote uh, a state of the scene address and tweeted it at you.
0: Oh, and he yes.
1: said, Anyone who can name check the hotelier and Brother Lynchong in the same sentence gets props from me. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been. I've been writing off of that for the past two years. That's just been <laughs> life. I, try, I try to make a difference, man. Um, <laughs>
2: but yeah, it's, but that, that's, and it's weird because I, I feel that stuff is super popular. Like the, you know, the mom, jeans, Prince, daddy, um, whoever else, like just friends, like the counterintuitive, uh, whole scene, even though it's like not getting as much, uh, attention from, you know, people like myself. Uh, as some of the emo revival bands did, but um, yeah, it j- I think it just kind of shows like how things evolved. Uh, because back in the night, like, mid nineties, you had like the more serious kind of twinkly Midwest stuff, and then it came kind of more pop, and then it became like just straight up pop. You really? know, I think we're maybe seeing a shift towards that, and I think that even kind of counts with like the emo trap stuff too. <laughs> you know? Yeah,
1: like, I was about to, I was about to bring that up because I feel. Like this barrier between the two forms of DIY music, uh, being, you know DIY guitar music versus DIY hip hop. Both are extremely grassroots and democratic forms of music made primarily by young people, and they are now finally crossing over in this exciting way. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's getting just massive amounts of shit, both from like old heads and you know new fans. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, mark my words: in ten years, like people will be publishing like coffee table books on Little Peep's life. Oh no!
2: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's gotten to the point where people are like, you know, Will Peep has like become already such like a major, um, a major uh, factor in pop music in general that like people are actually willing to take like Waka Faye seriously now.
1: Mm-hmm. And his new shit's actually great. <laughs> now that he finally has like solid production.
2: Well, yeah, behind the boards, man. That that guy must leave yeah the fucking might sleep one hour a night. And so well man, like I just love how I just love how like every time he like mentions anything like on Twitter or Instagram, people are like, yo, we're that new title fight at <laughs> no like the <laughs> dude,
0: like,
2: dude's at Columbia University right now, man. Or maybe graduated, I don't know. But it's just like I that's like one of my favorite running jokes in that in that realm. But um yeah, it's like I think, you know, the emo trap stuff like, uh, you know, Nothing Nowhere and um, uh, all that, it's, you know, that stuff is super duper popular and, you know, much to the same degree of maybe the 2007 Fueled by Ramen stuff that, um, you know, I wasn't well versed in. I, you know, uh, emo trap, I mean, I listen to that, I'm like, I feel fucking old, man, again. I feel old.
1: With Tom mullin like- both. <laughs> What's that? Uh, Tom Mullen also had the exact same reaction when we talked about emo rap on the pod. Yeah,
2: I mean, well, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? Like, I think that um, especially with like rap, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that um, if it's doing what it's supposed to, like it's going to make a guy like me who's like, you know, once again, I'm 38 years old. I have a full time, completely not music job. Uh, that takes up most of my time. I live in San Diego, California, which has not been like a DIY factor in God knows how long. And I'm not at the basement shows. So it's like, yeah, I'm not supposed to get it. And emo trap, you know, whatever you want to say, like, I mean, it's not my wave, but it's still like an evolution. That is a young person's uh, formula for music right there. Because I mean, like look it's great that there are bands that want to sound like cap and jazz and like all the you know all the stuff i would listen to in college when you know i wanted to get sad about some girl who didn't like me it's you know this is the sort of thing that's going to appeal to those who are like 16 or 18 and don't have the same sort of um attachment to those sort of like emo ethics or that emo sound or whatever and you know like in And maybe in 10 or 15 years, people, like, will be having this exact podcast about, like, that, about Wicca phase, you know?
1: (laughs) I think, I think what's right around the corner, actually, is bands, rather than taking influence from the song by Captain Jazz, Scary Kids, Scaring Kids, they're going to be taking influence from the band, Scary Kids, Scaring Kids. Yeah, exactly, man. (laughs) like, those bands that kind of have been, like, lost in the sands of time, looked at as, like, just, like, oh, bullshit for scene kids, like, the ninja (laughs) dance, too, like... They're they're gonna get rediscovered and they're gonna get like critically reappraised. I think yeah. that's that's definitely gonna happen.
2: It's our I mean it took look it took a lot of like moving mountains to get like not not the band itself but like <laughs> know, it, it took a lot of like effort to really get like emo in and of itself like recognized. And I think with things being the way they are now in um, you know at least the critical realm, there's a lot more people are much more opened or there's just like a more diversity or like more acceptance of like pop and uh, things that may not have been, it uh, may not have been, you know, like covered or even like acknowledged at all. And sure, you're gonna get some scene kids who will, I mean, I'm surprised there hasn't been like a full, full blown re-eval- re-evaluation of uh, Fall Out Boy or Panic at the Disco. I well, mean, there
1: kind of has been. My well, Chemical well, Romance are kind of like fully accepted well, now. Yeah, but my yeah, chemical yeah also went
2: on hiatus. Uh, <laughs> fallout boy and panic at disco are still making like huge so like they're they still uh, an ongoing concern. So I don't think <laughs> be, uh, And same with Paramore, well Paramore is like, you know, nowadays like Hayley Williams is like basically maybe like number 2 to Mitski as like the most unassailable like uh, you know, rock artist on Twitter. Yeah. Or they're,
1: like. they're like part of the poptimist canon now, yeah. Yeah, like that that much
2: is true, but I mean I don't know. I think there, there's going maybe be a fun time when like all those scene bands, like, you know, scary kids, scaring kids or whatever. I don't know where they become like a part of it um, where they become like just I'm, maybe it's just like a brief like flutter of, you know, some 25, some young guy who like gets on at like Vader or whatever is like super into that stuff. And all of a sudden they get like their critical reappraisal, like really nothing's off the table right now.
3: Yeah. I mean like, Two bands that are that are like stuck in my head right now is like Vane, who made yeah. new metal cool, and then fucking Just oh, Friends, oh, who like are basically like fucking nineties not... alt rock. Uh, they with like Three
1: Eleven. They made Three Eleven. Yeah, cool, Three Eleven.
3: Basically, <laughs> it's like yeah. somehow that stuff has been made palatable and well, like touring nonstop. Well, and you know
1: what's, What blew my God. mind was.
2: Yeah, the thing about new metal is that that's all, that stuff was like so popular that it inevitably had to have a second life. And you, like, I remember in 2015, like Grimes and Wonder Tricks Point Never were saying, Yeah, we're going to make new metal records. And there were some elements to it. And the Vane record, yeah, there's some slipping on there. Same with like Code Orange or whatever. But none of them ever really got that. Like, I mean, Korn made some catchy songs, like with big pop choruses, whereas. Vane is kind of new metal but like they're not really like the, the Yeah, the biggest it's not the stuff new stuff, metal
1: new metal so they have side. like the
3: sample drums and clean vocal hooks. Yeah. Yeah, they they, uh, vocal they have
1: That's... the Deftones influence is what it yeah, is. Like the Deftones, biggest the new metal element is the Deftones. Deftones.
2: Yeah, Deftones and like they're sort of like Paramore in that regard where they're like yeah, okay, like they're cool now. Like you can like that is not something you have to fight for anymore but like uh the other one like just kids just i'm sorry just friends Friends, i'm sorry yeah that's like a ska band basically Uh, and Um,
1: god bless (laughs) something that something that blew my mind was when the under oath album came out this year it was taken serious whereas like 10 years ago 10 or 12 years ago that would not have been the case it made seriously. yeah, Under Oath were like a critical, hot, like a viable property this year.
2: Oh. <laughs> I guess, I mean, news to me, but like, I'm not saying that as like a <laughs> this on Under Oath. It's just like, I mean, there's, there's what's a what's a critical point of interest in, I guess, my world. But um, I don't know. Like, I did, I think I saw Under Oath, I think maybe make the Billboard best rock. Like, like that. the Billboard one that came out recently was super interesting because it was like, um, you know, the your Mitskies and, like, Soccer Mommies and so forth. But it was also, like, some, like, House of Blues-type bands as well. And it's like, you know what? God bless someone who's, like, seeing, like, Chris Payne and Andrew Underberger, like, those those dudes, man. And, like, the, those guys are seeing, like, the big picture. God bless them. I mean, like, I tried listening to an Architects record, and, boy, that was just <laughs> not, my, that's not my thing. But God bless people who, like... That's like one of those albums that like gets like a 92 on Metacritic It's, like only five places to review it, and they're all like super enthusiastic. But yeah, you know, God bless people who are willing to like fight for that sort of music assigned to be like because all it really takes is just like one writer, like you know, Hanif, who like writes about like uh, the Wonder Years and like Fall oh, Out Boy and like they, they can't kill us until they kill us. That book. I mean, it just it's takes. It's
1: going to be four. me
0: going
2: to be made hey man, if, that, if that's your wave man ride it because it that's really all, all it takes is like one writer who's got the juice at the time and he, he was that guy and um you know maybe chris and andrew were that dudes like you know fighting for like the metal force scene and i mean but that's how stuff evolves otherwise we're just going to be like listen otherwise like all critics are going to talk about our bands is just sound like pavement you know or the fall
1: <laughs> yeah just bands that make a what's what's the phrase fractured pop songs yeah, yes. Sure. <laughs> De- deconstructed yes <laughs> which is just you know shorthand for this sounds like it was recorded in a vacuum cleaner exactly was this uh was this all all the time you had for us it is all the time i have for you guys tonight um did we reach the
2: uh did we reach or do we need to do a part two I would
1: just like to talk
2: with
3: you about like your experience with like emo and like finding all the bands that like the kids
2: online find about, you know, uh, well, I, I would love to talk with you guys about that, but we'd have to
1: schedule a part two. Yeah. Well, awesome. Then, yeah, we can do that.
2: Let's get it on the book sometime. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Dude, this was awesome, man. I, I dug this, man. This was
2: a uh, man. It's like you, you guys really bring the knowledge and like it, you guys have the, you know, good rapport with each other and it's, yeah, this was cool, man. I would definitely love to, you know, get more into uh, the stuff about, like, being, uh, writing about email and shit.
3: would be part two of our conversation with ian cohen we're recording this like a month and a half later um, <laughs> but i am glad that it's happening so on this part we're just gonna kind of chat i mean we talked everything or we said everything we wanted to say about emo pop right yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So. one thing that i wanted to start off with is just i'm curious ian how you keep up with emo because like an example that i that i remember was like you at the end of 2016 or 2017, you were posting about like Just Friends and how you're like, this is going to be like the future. And like Just Friends, like, didn't even put out that like LP out and stuff. So it seems like you're yeah. really quick to bands and also like Awake But Still In Bed, you were really quick to them too. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you keeping up with Emo?
2: It's interesting because I, I don't know. I feel as if like I'm like so behind the times in a lot of ways, but may, maybe it's because, um, I don't know. It's like maybe like I catch on to things after they've like bubbled up for long enough on your like emo subreddits or uh, or Twitter or whatever. And amongst you know the writing com- the mainstream writing community, it seems like like you said I may have gotten to that first. But in actuality, a lot of um, a lot of people on like Reddit, like the, the the emo Reddit page or Chorus FM, you know, formerly Absolute Punk or just. Um, you know, people on Twitter or whatever, people volunteering information to me. I don't feel as if I'm re- really like digging in in a lot of ways. Um, but for the most part, I think when something catches my interest, it's when there is enough of um, a groundswell of prior interest. You know, with uh, Awake But Still in Bed, someone referred that to me. I can't remember from where. And then it, things took off from there just friends you know like my i have friends who work in like pr and labels and stuff too and they put me on the thing so i would say generally speaking just going to the usual uh, the usual darker corners of like the internet but like at the end of the day i'm or just you know bands referring other bands or like oh i see this band opening up for a lot of bands. um it, it really just kind of comes to me in a way where i don't feel i have to i feel a little bit of guilt because i don't think I, you know, really do the groundwork that a lot of these other younger people do that are at the shows, who are at, like, arranging the DIY stuff, doing, like, little blogs or whatever. N- not little blogs, but, like, you know, ones that are, I guess, like, lesser known. Thanks for the
0: shout-out
1: there. Or whatever, and... Um...
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, so, so let, nope, let me just clarify something real quick. Yes. Like, people like me who are on you know, the emo subreddits and on the Facebook and on the Twitter and doing blogs yeah. and all the shit. We are losers with no lives. So of course we know about this stuff first. We have nothing better to do. Like <laughs> as far as like people with like real like big boy jobs, you are absolutely the first person to write about a wake that's still in bed. Like yeah. etcetera, et cetera. So don't don't knock yourself too hard.
2: Yeah, but at the same time it's like uh, I mean I, I feel as if sometimes it's a little too easy for me. Uh, because, you know, I, I admire how the people who are doing like the groundwork who are are, like really in there, uh, like I'm not going to these shows for the most part, A, because I live in San Diego, B, because like I'm 38 years old. And like, uh, even when I go to a Joyce Manor show, like I did uh, a few weeks ago, I feel like I'm a dad or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, but I think (laughs) I'm
1: a stage dived off a balcony the last time I saw Joyce Manor.
2: Well, I hope that didn't play but uh, I think it speaks more to, um, I guess, maybe the lack of um, the lack of like people really covering this stuff at the higher levels of like music publications than any sort of you know magic ear you know or any sort of thing I have going for me. It's just like it, I, I, if I'm if I'm getting to it first, it's probably because there's two other people who are who are like even checking for this stuff. So it just makes it look like. Uh, you know, it, it just makes it look a certain way when in actuality I'm you know, I'm doing the final part of the work instead of like the uh you know, the the real digging. But it's like a
3: really big deal when like an awake but still in bed gets a pitchfork review. It doesn't matter if it's getting <laughs> like a six or a ten, it's just like <laughs> it's kind of like, oh I... look at one of us. Like, and they were made, opening
2: it, like, And they were opening for Joyce Manor at that Palladium show. I mean, like that was a five—that's like a five thousand cap room. And um, and uh, and then I like when the first time I saw Awake but Still in Bed, that was at um, the the Observatory in Orange County opening for Joyce as well. And it's, I mean, that that was really cool to watch because usually you see a lot of bands who are um who are super new, and especially if like it's it's one person arranging a band rather than like four people who've been a band forever and like they they just own the stage I, they're they like that that band has such star quality um mm-hmm. I'm and, and so it was super cool to see them like be put up incredibly large stages uh and just kill it that, that's really and then I also saw them play for like 12 people at a record store in San Diego so <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I was just gonna say I think they play with like the same level of intensity no matter what room they're in and that star quality Ian was talking about that's like down to like Shannon's work ethic. She has just, like, yeah. an insane work ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like, as far as, like, rising stars go, I'm putting in my, like, my cap for Absid coming up. Same.
2: But, uh, you know, the I guess the, the nice thing about, um, you know, the thing you mentioned about how getting any sort of, you know, coverage from be it Spin or stereo Gum or Pitchfork or whatever, there is... Bands are really excited about it, even if it is like a six, because for so long, there was this, you know, this kind of inside jokes with, with within the writing community about how if a certain band that gets like a seven-two, they'll like call their publicist and say like, how come you only got us a seven-two? There's this like okay. entitlement, uh, there was this entitlement that really existed for a very long time. Maybe it still does within what I would consider the more traditional in, indie rock, um, the more traditional indie rock, whether it be labels or what have you, whereas like there's no real entitlement <laughs> in this world. Like they are just shocked and that they get like mentioned on either my like you know, or like someone like you know, Stephen Hyden, who uh, often writes about this stuff. If like they get mentioned on his like Twitter, that's like a big thing for them. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's 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 cool and it's a nice change of pace from uh, I guess the entitlement Oftentimes you see in the indie rock industrial complex
1: I mean indie rock industrial complex is like a really unique way of phrasing it do you think like because uh, in my view I feel like emo outside of like a couple bubbles whatever it's covered on Pitchfork and whatever is mostly outside of what, what the broader sphere like considers indie rock and in some, in some ways, I think like indie rock is somewhat more commercialized or cap- like structured in a more capitalist way than it has been before. For whatever reason, emo kind of exists outside of that bubble. I think that's the reason why like, people get so stoked when they see an emo band on Pitchfork because they know that it's not, it's not because they're the type of band that Pitchfork is expected to cover. Like you know, Pitchfork is going to cover the new Radiohead. You know they're going to cover like Arcade Fire or TV on the Radio or anything along those lines. But something like even back when they when when y'all reviewed Modern Baseball, I remember thinking mm-hmm. that was like a huge deal. Yeah. Oh my God! I'll tell you about.
2: It was super funny. Um, I remember back in the day when we had like um this thing like Pitchfork Advance or whatever, and it, yeah, it was it was like a thing where we would stream out oh, yeah. in advance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I remember when we we did modern baseball. Like uh, you know, we were just. Uh, I don't really remember like the. I didn't have that much say in it like at all. Like I would sometimes recommend things and I'd say like, why don't we do this modern baseball one? Like we're writing about it. I like it. And I remember it got like so much traffic that like they somehow they were like front like on the front page of it, and which was like just the funniest thing. Because this was back when they still were just, you know, dudes wearing shorts and Crocs on stage. And, like, <laughs> and no one really knew who they were. But that was just one of the indications of uh, how. And let me just clarify that there was n- one of the things, like, I think people oftentimes, like, will say to me or whatever. It's like, oh, you guys are just covering it to look cool or to get clicks or something like that. Like, I can assure you that no one ever told <laughs> me. Told me, hey man, just keep, you know, keep going with this emo stuff. This is this makes us look super fucking cool, and we we gotta get this modern baseball traffic. But nonetheless, it was um, it was funny because so many people like responded to that album. It it, it was just kind of unusual, and the same sort of thing happened uh, with Balance and Composure. I remember when we ran that uh, interview for Reflection. Like the internal conversation about that was. I got sent an email about it, and it was like a couple of people on an email chain, like three people maybe, guys who like usually cover like you know, metal or harder forms of rock. And the discussion was on the lines of like, hey, it is kind of hot topic, but I'm fucking with it. It's like, yeah, me too. Let's run something on it. Why not? Just, there was just such a huge response to it, like an unusual uh, like just an unusually big response to this like little track from this band that we like never covered before. and Honestly, that was how I got introduced to a lot of the people who work within this world. Whether it be, uh, you know, Kevin at Top Shelf, Jamie Coletta, um, uh, just James, uh, James Cassar, like just people like that. Like all of a sudden, coming out of the woodworks to contact me uh, and to let me know about like stuff that's going on in this world. Be- because all of a sudden, it's like, wow, we can get this stuff covered. And from our end, it was just seeing this huge response it's like what the fuck are they doing covering balance and composure um so yeah that's that's kind of where like 2013 that year i mean that's where it all kind of got started mm-hmm. and once again you know the, as far as mainstream coverage of that stuff like we i think we were kind of the first uh, as far as the major publications to go on it but at the same time we're looking like when i would do the 10-year uh um, anniversary pieces on Tiger's Jaw recently and Balance and uh, Joyce Manor or Algernon there was like this period of time from 2008 to 2012 or what have you where these bands like were, were, were pretty big in the grand scheme of things but they just weren't being covered at all and by the time that places like us and Stereo Gum and Spin really got on it, it was, it was like this fully functioning ecosystem uh, where we had like really intense and fairly large fan bases and all these connections can be made and all of these uh like it it wasn't just like finding this like shot in the dark it was it was like uncovering atlantis almost um i'm like not even because you know we we cover you know we we write about like whenever if ever in 2013 and that's you know seen as like kind of a bigger deal but like that ignores all the stuff that came before beforehand, like all the splits, all the EPs, yeah. uh, all the high. and I mean, we came on at the end of it, uh, but at the same time, it was still sort of the beginning as well. So I think in the in recent times when I, the fact that we've had so many 10 year anniversary pieces, let me see just how broad the scope of this really is and how we skipped over the first Tiger Shaw album, like not just us, but like everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh for, like, Punk News or Absolute Punk or uh, whatever, Either the first Joyce Manor record. Like, we p- try to find any coverage of that. Same with Algernon, who was, like, a pretty big band. Um, when I was doing the research for a lot of those, like, uh, retrospective pieces, there's just not a lot on the Internet. Either the blogs, like, have shut down or... It, you know, the archives have been purged just no one was really writing about them so once again I give all the credit to the people laying the groundwork I just kind of showed up at a time when it was hey, hey there was like a scene this isn't a band this is like an entire
1: thing because you were talking earlier about how when you would advance stream a record like Modern Baseball or Balancing Composure that you would get a really strong rush and those bands would end up on the front page despite them potentially not being as big as, you know, other artists that you were spotlighting.
2: Yeah, you had mentioned, I was like, where did we even start on this conversation? It was about the kind of indie industrial complex, which yeah. a well, lot of these bands, bands I, really operate outside of.
1: I kind of put that enthusiasm down to the fact that compared to bands in the quote-unquote indie industrial complex, fans of emo are just a lot more passionate. I think that, like, is what's embedded within the genre from the get-go is that people are really really tightly embedded within like like they they're invested in seeing those bands succeed
2: mm-hmm. absolutely and so and that's an interesting uh thing to cover because um i mean it, that, that's like one of the great things and the difficult things about covering this world because um, that's what i was
1: gonna ask about yeah
2: yeah because in a number of ways it manifests because I mean, I'm sort of lucky in that, like, I'm outside of, you know, this, this scene or whatever. So I have a bit of critical distance from it. And in the same way, it's a lot of the people uh, writing about, say, like, not even like Radiohead or Arcade Fire TV on the radio or people you mentioned before. I'm thinking more along the lines of things like, even like Beach House or Fleet Foxes or Mitsuki, you know, things like that. Whereas, sure. um, yeah, but the, the, fan, the fans of uh, this sort of music uh, tend to be younger uh tend to be uh very engaged on you know tumblr twitter they're they're extremely online yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is but that's the thing that's not to say that people who love you know beach house or mitski aren't extremely online in their Mm. own ways Mm -hmm. but at the same time there's a level of professionalism and like not to say but and by that i mean there's usually like a you know, a bigger label involved. There's like a PR team involved. I mean
1: There's I imagine that fans who are, really into, who are really into Beach House are like extremely online on Pinterest. You
2: know?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, they,
2: well they may be extremely online in their own ways. And that and I do think maybe in some ways people who are as enthusiastic about like the hotel year are like, you know, people are can be that enthusiastic about Beach House in their own sort of way but like it's not you know point and shout all the beach house lyrics back at the singer you know or I mean, get the lyrics tattooed on you or like name a album like or name a record label after a beach house song but um it's it and it's it you know it, because like w- one thing you see with like the fact that the scene so tightly knit it can elevate bands it can also like result in a lot of like backbiting and um You know, gossip that really makes it uncomfortable to cover this stuff sometimes because you'll hear one band saying this negative thing about this band and they toured or just like hearing yo this guy is kind of a shithead or uh, this label did us dirty and all that and I don't think that stuff really arises as much at the higher levels you know
3: yeah, like, no one's going to get mad if Snail Mail goes from Merge Records to Captured Tracks or something. But, like, if Mob oh, Jeans first. goes from Counterintuitive to, like, Rise Records, there would be a fucking <laughs> war zone.
1: Yeah, there'd be yeah. shit um, and I... It's, sorry, go ahead.
2: The people who write about, like, Snail Mail, for the most part, like, I mean, everyone at every level writes about that band, but, like, yeah. when they get covered at, like like... At the beginning though, Mom Jeans is being written about by people who even book that show and maybe even like play in a band that is in that general range. Like maybe they play with Mom Jeans or like a band that plays with a band that plays with Mom Jeans. Whereas there there's there isn't as much distance and that's yeah, and that's and that's why it gets a little bit uncomfortable whenever you see like the kind of gossip and um, you know, things like that going on uh you even, you, you even beyond the idea of like selling out you know yeah
1: <laughs> you mentioned the hotelier like earlier and to me the hotelier are kind of like emblematic of a band that started out in emo and then thanks to coverage by places like pitchfork and av club they kind of leapt their way into the broader indie rock sphere like kind of like how uh ajj also like left their way from folk punk to the broader indie rock sphere I, do you do you feel like uh, you sensed like that sort of shift? In some ways, there's always
2: going to be that separation. and that it, there's always going to be that like sort of line. if you started out in quote emo in any sort of way, whether it's you started out like on a label such as I don't know top shelf or. Tiny, maybe not tiny engines so much anymore. But like, if you started out in that emo world, there's not like you just can't cross that barrier to the same degree like a snail mail would, or like Mitski. Because like Mitski was like you know starting out playing like on exploding and Sna- or double double whammy or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Being a uh, Joyce Manor fan and you know Jeff Rosenstock and things like that. But once they get to that place where they're on Dead Oceans and they're rep by a certain PR company, they can be seen in a different way. Now, the hotel year, you know, they started out on, gosh, whatever that label was, started out by like the guy from uh, Census Vale. It was like kind of, but either way, it's like they they are covered, you know, pretty regularly by the bigger places. At the same time, though, at their most recent tour, they've, yeah, I mean, they've opened up for Jimmy Eat World, but they've also, as recently as 2018, opened up for Girl Pool, which, um, you know, is a band that has made that crossover to mm. the indie industrial complex. And I don't think the hotel year is there. They don't get booked that, like, they, you, you'll notice, like, any given year, there's, like, a few bands that get on the festivals circuit, like, playing every, every festival circuit at, like, 3 p.m., you know, your car seat headrest or your snail mail or JSON or things like that and i don't think the hotel year was there i don't think the world is ever got there i don't think that's happened even for a band like joyce manor to a certain degree um like i can't i can think of very and modern baseball certainly didn't get there there's always that like and if you ask artists who play in this realm like this is the kind of subtext of every single interview i've done with them where they, they just talk about like how they want to be able to tour with certain bands or be seen in a certain way or covered a certain way. And it's just really, really difficult to do because there's just still, even after all this time, this view of like emo or pop punk or whatever being outside of indie rock. And Uh, and that's kind of a double, that's kind of a double-edged sword because at the same time, being in that realm is how they kind of get propelled to a point where they get paid attention to, you know? Do you think they have
3: to like let go or like, or just have to like, I mean like let go in the sense of just like, okay, I'm going to get thrust around in this industry and let them put me where they think I belong?
2: Well, it's, it's more in the sense of like, if a band gets like picked up by a certain label or a certain PR company, they, I think they get presented in a way, or just seen in a way that you, they wouldn't if they were on a different label. Like, let's, 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 you know, I always like to do kind of like a mental exercise of like something like Foxing's last album. Um, mm-hmm. It did really, really well amongst my 38 or, you know, 30 something friends who like are the type of people who you know stop reading pitchfork in like 2012 and like stop going to shows and they had kids and you know this is a band Big that like, came from <laughs> 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 they, i mean but like, came from, like count your lucky stars the triple crown yeah like they were up for like gosh like Sea Haven the first time i saw them in a you know recently kobe in cambria yeah. but imagine if that came out on like 4ad or something along those lines they they did a split with Japanese Breakfast in 2013, but you look at Japanese Breakfast now, who was a band, you know, they started out, like Michelle is like a little big league, yep. a band on both tiny inches and run for cover. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but she, you know, her band is very, very much within the, in the industrial complex, whereas boxing is not. You know, maybe that's just like a matter of the fact that maybe people don't like the vocals or people don't like the production. I mean, I think this—it's not so much a—it's kind of the way it's always been, to be honest with you. I mean, you look back at uh, old Rolling Stones or like Paz and Jobs, and like sunny day real estate is not on there. Uh, even the stuff that we consider classic now—that uh, stuff was not really taken all that seriously. Um, so, it's changed a lot, but in some ways, I think certain barriers exist between you know, emo as we talk about it now in indie rock, even though it is pretty much indie rock. And like a lot of the bands that we call emo now are like taking cues from <laughs> modest mouse and, uh, and uh TV on the radio and antlers and, uh, or are just know, straight know. up pop punk fans and not emo. Fans. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing there, there was like the, um, there was like the antagonism towards that genre, even before, you know, the long Island stuff and the hot topic stuff. So it's, change but i think there's still that stealing
1: tom mullen always likes to bring (laughs) up uh, the trashing get up kids and dear you like anytime pitchfork gives positive review to an emo album um
2: that's you know
1: it's, it's weird that i sometimes i really feel like the disdain towards pop punk by places like pitchfork or you know other music criticism websites is really very arbitrary because those first couple Superchunk albums, they sound like pop punk to me, but they just get called indie rock. Mm, like, yeah. that, but, and that's it, what I'm,
2: and that's sort of what I'm talking about as far as like the uh, difference between what you would call proper indie rock and um, and emo. Because one of my, you know, one of my jokes is like, well, what's the best Superchunk album? Something to write home about. Um, and, <laughs> and, pair, and 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 I'm told that uh, the new Get Up Kids. Uh, probably won't set like uh, I. It, it's they they use uh, Superchunk's Majesty <laughs> shredding as kind of a, as kind of a as kind of a idea of what to expect. But
0: huh. it is kind
2: of. But once again, like Superchunk was a band that started Merge Records, one of the definitive labels of big indie. Yeah. You know, Arcade Fire, Mutual Milk Hotel. You you fucking name it. Um, and it is sort of arbitrary, but, uh, and, and it's still, I think even to this day, pretty arbitrary in the sense of like, you look at even something like wild pink, who no one would really consider, right. you know, evil, but at the same time they're on tiny engines and, uh, it takes a lot more, not because of the quality and even tiny engines, I mean, they get a lot, a lot of attention, but. It still doesn't get that um, initial push. You know, those are always, always like the growers, the underrated type things. Whereas something um, like Amen Dunes uh, has that push in the beginning because they have that machine behind them, and also is presented as something for you know, for lack of a better term adult discerning indie listeners and uh not people like us i suppose <laughs> who, who, who are talking on a podcast about emo
3: <laughs> can i just ask you like a very hot button topic right now um which is gonna be this way forever but do you think Remo drive is an emo band
2: <laughs> well that was not where i was expecting this to go <laughs> um <laughs> yeah boy are emo? Fuck, man. I mean, they're opening for Saves the Day, who that and them emo and who themselves are like. I mean, they, Saves the Day is emo, but at the same time, they're like pop. Does uh, it really matter? I, I think for <laughs> well, the come on, give us. Come
1: on. Yes uh, or no? Okay. The, I, Saves the day are emo, but they're also pop punk and also like hardcore. At
2: the yeah. Point. Yeah. I would say Remo Drive with my experience and that, God, that, that, <laughs> uh, um, I would say that for the purposes of this discussion, they are definitely outside the indie industrial complex,
3: <laughs> like whatever wow. you want
2: to call, like whatever you want to call. They are the type of band who, um, if I if it, I would imagine they're a candidate, and I, I you know I'm not I'm always speaking on like what I expect their new album to sound like and this is outside of my opinion they seem like the kind of band who would be like a total get a 3.5 in 2001 from pitchfork so if that makes them even they're definitely emo
1: i mean if you think if you think the get up kids sounded like super chunk the first time i heard remo drive i was like this is fucking super chunk yeah like 100 (laughs) percent. yeah
2: the first time I heard Remo drive, it was like because they, and I think they emailed me because they were just blowing up because Anthony Fantano liked them or something.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, I
2: think that was a big boost, um, which is funny because that guy, he like shits on actual good emo. So, what can I tell you? <laughs> he won't reply to our email. But yeah, Remo, I honestly don't fucking know, man. For the purposes of our discussion, we're talking about him on your podcast, their emo, there. Yes, that's your pull quote.
1: That's actually like the most pragmatic thing anyone's ever said on this show. (laughs) (laughs) What a high high honor. Can can I actually ask like a a very serious question, like to kind of counter Kyle's hop on topic there? All right. Something that I've... Always been like very curious about asking uh, people in the music journalism world because you know it's it's their job to really cover these sorts of things. Is you know situations like Pine Grove and Sorority Noise that so we just talked we just talked about Sorority Noise in the last episode we recorded, and we were unable to come up with like any sort of conclusions. Um, and I was just wondering if from your vantage point, uh, if you have any insights you can offer us on those sorts of things because I know Pitchfork like covered the, the Pine Grove story kind of intensively um, yeah
2: did they ever the, the job that uh, Jen did on that story was pretty phenomenal and at the same same time what had happened at the end people were thinking like well what are we to make of it because the story itself is so there's so much to it and there's really no definitive answer uh, as to what are we to make of this sort of thing, and um, and I think it, it the question arises whether this stuff happens more in the emo realm or whether the emo realm is like more is better or more aggressive about you know pursuing it because you hear about this stuff a lot more a lot in other genres and other forms or whatever, and these stories tend to you know go beat. Kind of poorly held secrets for years and years and years until like recently. Like, I think of examples of like crystal castles and real estate. Uh, I mean, that stuff was like pretty well known amongst people in the industry. And, you know, the, a, a, then they finally broke. But um, the stuff, I mean, like, you look at brand new, I mean, this is the biggest band in the entire probably scene. And their career was ended in about three days. Like, and it was that quick. Um, and so there's always a question of, like, whether there's more um, more policing and better policing. I mean, there's still so much that goes underreported. But I guess getting back to the whole, you know, what to make of it all, I don't have an answer for that. And I don't think anyone really does. With Pine Grove, it's, it was interesting to see because, um, you know, on one hand, you had – what I mean if Skylight had come out when it was planned and I think March of 18 or whatever before everything kind of broke they would be possibly that band we described before who came from the emo world and were able to break through Um and now it's interesting because on some level they've lost like just ridiculous amounts of career momentum and also they had those those shows and that little tour they did towards the end of 2018 that sold out like yeah. instantaneously, yeah. Um, and Skylight did incredibly well on Bandcamp or something like that. And a lot of people, myself included, and it sounds like y'all as well, it's like, well, what do we make of this? Like, what? And there's just so much gray area that, that I don't think anyone any really answers, myself included. And you know, perhaps in this time talking, I've only. I haven't even said anything worth, uh, anything like we're taking away because like, I don't know how to really like, I don't re- I don't really know how to speak on this stuff. I mean, with sorority noise, it was like, well, well sorority noise and brand new. It's like those bands ended like they were already planning to end. And so when these things came up, it just kind of expedited the process. And Pine Grove is, is one that sort of, and sort of unprecedented in that uh, they kind of kept going um, so I think people are just trying to figure this out as it, as, it, as it goes and you know for some people it'll be you know I can never listen to pine Grove again and for some people it's like okay well uh did you know did they did they do what uh was asked of them from the accuser and then some other people are like well y- you would see it's like like, well not everyone knows the whole story there's still stuff that hasn't come out yet so it's a question I don't have an answer to because I'm not even sure what the question really is sometimes like whether it's okay to listen there to or should they continue their, career? like I don't know and I'm not like I don't think it's my place to really tell anyone how to deal with it you know
3: but if someone's like yeah. pitching you to write about it like uh, do, you, do you just kind of what what do you actually do? Well, with,
2: um, with Pine Grove, I mean, for me, it's like I didn't go out of my way to uh, write about that one, uh, Skylight. Um, I just think for, for – first, and this is just my own personal calculus. For me, it just – like, for me, like, I, I just don't go near that stuff because of, you know, I'm just not that engaged in the music music world where i have to have an opinion on it so for some i think for me it's like it's it's probably better that i just say nothing (laughs) as far as like i can like as far as like writing about pine grove or writing about sorority noise or writing about brand new you know uh there's no shortage of people who will do that i just think for my own personal health (laughs) and sanity um it's and if that makes me like i don't know not like good for the call. like there's there are ways I can be supportive and ways I can be you know respectful of the situation and I think if, for for just my personal experience, if like I just don't think there, there's another person who can write about this stuff at any given publication. It doesn't have to be me.
1: Can I just say it's like really validating? to hear that ian cohen also has no idea what to do with this shit yeah. like I'm, just,
2: <laughs> I, I'm glad that we've got that but i think that maybe a lot of people kind of feel that uh, a desire for that validation as well because i think in private conversations i have with people about these sort of stories it's like no one really knows what to do and there's um uh, i guess pressure as a writer to be on the right side of things and to be you know a good ally and to um and, and so forth but at the same time it's like am i am i really willing to put myself out there and levy judgment like one way or the other i like whether i say no you can never listen to pine Grove ever again they're like permanently canceled or me saying well i think you should give them a second chance for reasons x y and z like uh, it's not something i feel Comfortable or even necessary, put it like rendering judgment on the public sphere because I mean that to me is something I'm way less comfortable doing as a human being than saying whether or not I think a record is good. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. That was heavy. That yeah. and, 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 and 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 that's and that's and that's tough because like, gosh, man, there have been so many bands that I've like you know vouched for. Uh, in the past who have had situations where it's like fuck man like I don't know what to do about this now
1: I, yeah I like very personally have had to deal with that stuff too on like a smaller scale it's just like it's it's an unpleasant feeling isn't it
2: <laughs> it, it, it is and
1: you know not to
2: you know like elevate like what it is we're talking about to like this thing of like grave importance but I think one thing I've learned more and more is that one of the nice things about being at my age or my position or having that degree of separation is that like I have the distance where I like I don't need to jump in if I feel like I just don't feel like telling people how to feel about certain things like especially this where it's there is just so much it's such hot button stuff and everyone comes to it with their own perspectives and experiences and um yeah it's not it's really not for me to say Mm -hmm. (laughs) and even saying it's not for anyone to say comes off as like you know I'm not comfortable having that opinion either because it's 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 a new wrinkle of um writing about music that perhaps should have always existed and maybe existed to a lesser degree in the print era. But um, it's something that I think a lot of writers really struggle with and none of them, I mean, some may really come across like, yes, this is my moral calculus. Uh, um, Mine, I don't have, like, I don't, I can't say what it is. And if there's any chance of like me feeling like, I am rendering judgment on like what's okay for people to listen to and what's not based on whatever personal stuff they they've done. It's just when in doubt, I shot when in doubt, I just try to say nothing.
3: <laughs> the one like takeaway I mean, that we've gotten is like, we just don't is, like, want just... people promoting it. And like, that seems I mean, just, mm-hmm. and, or just being private about like listening to it and enjoying it. But like people, I mean, like, on, on the subreddit yesterday, someone posted, like, a Sorority Noise, like, hat. And they were like, hey, I just got this. And people were like, oh, that's kind of fucked up, don't you think? And people were like, no, why is it, like, why, why are you telling me how to feel and stuff like that? We think, like, that's, like, an easy rule to follow. Like, don't promote it or something. But people just don't get I, it.
1: And then, I mean, people are so emotionally invested. Yeah. Especially in emo. Yeah. That. Because it's, like, a youth-driven like, talent- thing. Yeah, telling someone that their emotional attachment to something can't be valid is, like, really, like, unsettling to their core.
2: Yeah, and I think that's true of, like, any genre in particular. Like, you know, with, like, certain uh, metal or rap or just anything that, any music that's, like, typified by a certain kind of intensity, uh, particularly of, like, emotional resonance. And the question becomes, like, what is it? mean to promote a band like you said it's like okay to listen to it in the um in the in in your own private way but not to promote it and and what does that mean to promote it for example like uh if tweeting about um, it
3: even sharing it on your instagram story like that's promoting putting it it
1: in your top 10 of the year
2: you know Mm -hmm. yeah and that's the thing it's like um uh, but and some might say that like even listening to science fiction Uh, on Spotify um, in the privacy of my own home where no one could possibly know about it still somehow puts money in brand new's pocket so is that irresponsible there's really an end to what and for some people it's like I can't listen to it ever again and for some people it's like the same I mean I'll bring a situation from my own life where um, I work in like kind of residential treatment and And um, in 2018 or whatever, like these, and I work with primarily women, uh, like actually exclusively women at this particular place. And someone comes in, uh, and she has a brand new T-shirt on, and this is someone who's been through like a lot. And she's, and my understanding of it, like my just my initial reading of it is like this person may not know that a brand new even released a new record in 2018. 2017 and secondly she almost definitely doesn't know um, you know all the other stuff with like Jesse Lacey and everything and and I think it, 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 in a weird like a lot of people like it was big news it's like the biggest news in our realm but and for people who like listen to brand new in like 2003 and maybe like just stop listening like they probably don't know about this stuff um, like, like a lot like I, a lot of people are kind of like unaware of it and so it's like it, it's, it's super confusing in that way as well. Um, you know, like it, with a lot of like artist malfeasance, I mean, R Kelly, everyone knows about that now. Cause there was a guy in documentary made about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I think to people who are outside of maybe the Tumblr, or like just people who don't read music publications, they may be like completely unaware of like a lot of this stuff. So kind of getting back to it, it's like, someone who listens to brand newer sorority noise in their privacy of their own home, like is is that promoting it? I like, I, I honestly don't know.
3: I mean another I mean, like equivalent is like Kodak Black. Like he's gonna sell out shows for the rest of his life even though like he's a piece of shit. Like
2: <laughs> I mean like all that stuff is like really out there. But um yeah, yeah it's and it's and it's always super interesting to see like what the calculate, but I think with like, like with Kodak Black, um, specifically, I think that like, or XS Tentacion or whatever, um, there was always the question of like, well, why doesn't the same thing happen to them that happened to say Power Bottom or even brand new, you know, like a band like Swans, for example, and
1: yes. um, it's hip hop just doesn't well, have like the same structure of. Accountability. I don't think. I think it for whatever does. reason. I think it
2: does, but I think the difference is once a artist of any kind of, whether it be hip hop or pop. I mean, um, or like I, I, I can think of many examples, like uh, um, you know, big pop artists who like work in rock or work in genres outside of hip hop um, or any uh, like just big big star. Let's call it that. Who have situations um, that, and they, but I think what and this kind of ties back to the thing we said about before about the scene where Power Bottom's career was like ended in a day because there's yeah. still the same people who, um, who you know, who elevated them are the same ones who could bring them down. And in the in the example of one of like X X S or R Kelly or. Uh, whatever I mean they're just so they're so big that um they can't be taken down by like music critics or whatever like they're just outside of the control of any sort of like scene and it has and to me it has nothing to do with like um you know a genre or anything like that it's I think once a I don't know and maybe that'll change in the future but um it's really interesting to see how some stories play out because of their circumstances i mean like power bottom has like you can never have that set of circumstances ever again so it's hard to say like well, why doesn't this happen same thing happen to them happen to uh, this other artist i mean like they they all that stuff like broke the day before their album was going to yeah. come out yeah yeah and it was a very specific kind of band who you know, stood for certain things publicly, and then this private behavior goes against that. And I think that's really got, you know, that's really what makes things difficult. Like, not makes things difficult. That's really where the grayer. Like, that's really where why it gets like more inflamed in the in this in, in, in the story of like Pine Grove or whatever, because there's that you know, the the image that they put forth in their music and their stage and then there's the things they're being accused of um and so this is like very meant to be very uplifting communal uh music and then you hear about it's it kind of ruins it for some people and even with like brand new who like every single record from like including like every single record did not present jesse Lacey as this like a very good person um it was like this like I'm a piece of shit, I deserve to go to hell, and I'm not gonna say why, <laughs> but you know, that that resonated with people. But like when it became obvious, oh, this is what he's probably singing about, it still uh created that like incredible dissonance that made people feel betrayed, you know?
3: Yeah, and like yeah. Power Bottom were getting protested by churches oh. at their shows and then, <laughs> then yeah, they like turned out mm-hmm. to be going against everything that Their community stands for that, like, you know, I that stings.
1: I amend my earlier statement, uh, about hip hop. I do think it is genre agnostic because Antoine also got his career ended in no fucking time, yeah. When that stuff came out about him, like, Lil Ugly Mane's condemnation of Antoine was like really fucking damning, yeah. Um, wow, I didn't even really hear,
2: but I mean, that's just a name I haven't thought of in a while, like, I had no, well. Uh, I guess that's the reason. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But yeah um, I mean, but like specifically with, you know, the stuff we talk, talk about, I mean, a lot of particularly in the past, you know, decade, a lot of what emo has been trying to do is repair the image people have had of it of being primarily like misogynist in its own way or very bro and very like, um, you know, kind of mall. Uh, And a lot of like what the revival bands were trying to do was like deconstruct that idea and say it's about community and like mental health and, um, you know, being more inclusive of people. And then that's why a lot like that's, I think, plays a big part in why bands who fail to live up to that standard get this bands who are in that community, fail to live up to that standard, get like taken down like immediately and almost irrevocably.
1: To circle back to something you mentioned earlier About how you didn't know if Maybe it was more widespread In like pop punk and emo and hardcore These sorts of allegations I've kind of always been of the opinion that I don't think it's necessarily more widespread I agree that our communities just Are more aggressive in calling it out Because the scenes I mean they're <clears throat> countercultural aesthetically Inherently they're just microcosms Of the rest of society around Like Yeah it, I think that's intrinsically, true a lot in, yeah, intrinsically we can't make ourselves not a community and therefore like not subject to the same problems as the broader community that we define ourselves against.
3: True. Well,
1: where do we go from here then? <laughs> do we Yeah,
3: that was <laughs> <laughs>
2: heavy shit, man. Like last, last the the first time we were just like talking about like fucking SAS core or whatever and now like we're dealing with like the heaviest shit imaginable it's like um i mean like,
1: welcome to the fucking word that's what we do This yes, is
2: <laughs> like i'm choosing my words like like to, i'm like choosing my words very carefully to be able to explain the uh extremely nebulous ideas i have about like very nebulous topics but i mean i think you're right in that it's something that it's very difficult if not impossible to you know think about if you're going to listen to this kind of music and be, be someone who's engaged with it you know
1: mm-hmm. well, but as
2: far as like, where we go from here shit it's hard to hard to say i mean i think that you know, i mean I, I don't i i oftentimes think about like the future and if it exists and like what it's going to look like and if yeah because i think in the past couple of years um you know, it's taken a huge amount of hits in a large number of ways. With a lot of a lot of the bigger names being either canceled or breaking up, or uh, you know, the, the changes in, in music journalism itself. Um, yeah, I just, I, what's the future? Uh, you tell you guys tell me. You're the you're the ones out there. You know.
1: I mean, right now, uh, the two biggest trends in emo are probably like. Weedmo, as people have called it, still, sparkle punk party emo, whatever. That's that's is the that one still,
2: I thought that was like last year's big thing. Is that still like, uh, on I mean, like,
3: we have a fucking Prince Daddy album coming out this year, so
2: yes, I, I did see something along those lines. Yes,
1: I do think it's it's gonna be on its way out soon, but that's what is like up, it, it's in a peak year and. Maybe maybe 2019 will end up being more of like a reinforcement year, and then it will fall off. And then the other big thing is over in Screamo. You also have like the White Belt revival. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: you know, like yeah, the, the bands bringing back Sascore and Screamo, whatever, are getting like quite a lot of steam.
2: What are the White Belt revival bands I need to like have on my radar besides like Space Cowboy or whatever?
1: Wrist meat razor. Wrist? Are you kidding me? I mean they're named after usurp Synapse song. Like that's legit screamo. Um but I know their name totally sounds like some shit you find in like two thousand six Hot Topic. Like but that's like the aesthetic they're going for, I think.
2: Um, okay. Cool. <laughs> I'm into it. Like I mean, maybe- I
1: really want I I want neon merch coming back. I want like neon colored DC candy high tops coming back. <laughs> I want classic Osiris coming back. Um
2: uh- Honestly, if enough of this stuff happens, maybe we'll get a Blood Brothers reunion
1: again. I like, hope so. I mean, that's, or just that's what I was fucking saying. Yeah, I was actually thinking because you know, like now that the uh, now that the white belt stuff is coming back. All that dance punk shit, like the Rapture and Hot Hot Heat, that came out of like Sassy Screamo. That's where it was born. So yeah, maybe we'll get well, um, the rap-
2: Steve
3: Aoki's Raps- label
1: is reuniting.
2: Oh, so, um, it's it's funny. Yeah. I actually um, I thought about this a lot with um, just like thinking about like the Pretty Girls Make Graves record from like um, uh, that one that was on Lookout and Good Health in two thousand two and I thought about like how dance punk that was the thing in two thousand two and you had like two separate versions of it like you mentioned you have like the Rapture who were like once again that is in the industrial complex on DFA and you know they were uh, it's like it's more like dance music performed like punk in a way but like you had your hot hot heat and pretty girls make graves were punk music that was just danceable um yeah. and if that's the i mean club night is an example of a band that like brings that that sort of aesthetic into 2019 uh, and they have the new their new record coming out um I think that one will definitely bring a lot of names you haven't heard in a while into the conversation. And ones that I'd be excited to see talked about again, because I I listened back to that stuff from 2002, even like the DC adjacent, like the stuff from like DC, like list 70 black eyes. Yeah. And,
1: um, nation of Ulysses and that stuff. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Or no, I mean more like late, I mean, late nineties DC, like dismemberment, plan and like oh, okay. like that's like the real kind of like angular like shirtless dudes, beards, that sort of thing um, you and you know maybe really that stuff will, yeah and uh, maybe that stuff will come back as well I think there's an interest for that sort of thing because I think and mind you I'm like 38 so take this what you will I, I think for the past couple of years we've really gone a bit too hard on the uh, you know kind of strummy strummy strum like pavement or Baruch salt sort of sound and uh, <laughs> it, or, and maybe it or like weezer that sort of like and maybe we just need more ang- yeah like we need more like more angular and spastic kind of stuff like um like old dismemberment plan and like old q and not you and uh uh pretty girls make graves and that kind of stuff like where it's just really it's like emo sorta of by default because they have like real yelpy vocals and like they mm-hmm. don't know how to dress really on
0: stage. So, <laughs> so I don't know.
1: You know what? I, I mean let's just be honest. Yeah. The Death from above nineteen seventy nine used to be a Screamo band. They used to be a band called Black Cat thirteen. They played like plot yeah. to blow up the Eiffel Tower S Emo. The plot <laughs> wow. to blow up Eiffel Tower. <laughs> that
2: that that's that's a band who uh, that, that that there's a problematic band that uh, I was thinking like what bands from the early 2000s would no way they would be like uh, be accepted now and I think that definitely from above that's a that's a band that was like people always kind of knew there was some bad shit going on with them and now it's more like oh they're like kind of a proud boy sort of band well this band
1: Price- I mean. <laughs> is that is that true? I always I've never heard of this. Thought they were com- I thought they were coming at it from like an explicitly like homoerotic, subversive kind of angle, like uh, loving the fascist brothel has like a, a gay Nazi on the cover. I thought it was like something their nose at that type of shit.
2: I, I think I think very recently the guys in the Death from Above 1979 were like involved with like Gavin McGinnis, like in oh the, Death
1: from you? Above. I thought you were yeah. talking about thought to blow
2: up the Eiffel Tower. I'm sorry. Uh, I, no. <laughs> I uh, was wild and out. <laughs> no, definitely about 1979 is like uh, I. You look back from that whole sort of era of like vice bands, and it's yeah, it's like yeah, oh, they, they all turned out to be shitheads. Go fucking figure. It's like oh, a band on vice no. records, and they all like to do coke. I I don't know. It seems like you guys are much more um, knowledgeable about some of that stuff than uh, I am. But, um, yeah, it just, but it, it just kind of brings up, like, any scene has its problem people, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, artists are, are problematic people for the most part. Even with, like, the bands that you hear about, of, like, oh, they're so... Like, they'll, you'll find out they were, you know, they're shitty to people, or they screw people over economically in some ways that wouldn't necess- necessitate, like, quote, cancellation. But sometimes like oh wow like they're that they're, they're kind of shitty but that's uh, maybe a part of the human condition i don't know
1: <laughs> yeah to me there's always been a difference between like just bands kind of being shitheads and then like genuinely problematic behavior that should be yeah. like yes not condoned you know absolutely yeah mm-hmm. but
2: you know once again everyone has their own thing of like i of why i can't listen to this band anymore and it could be a number of things you know yeah. For example, if the band is just yeah.
1: like just a bad band, that's my line. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I mean that that never hurts in terms of like should I or not, should I, should I or not listen to this band. It's like, oh, they suck. Okay. Well fuck that then.
1: <laughs> like black I've been like fascinated with black metal lately, like the early nineties Norwegian black metal scene. Um oh. luckily, well, luckily for now. me. Lords of Chaos? Yeah, I mean my girlfriend got us thickest to see it uh, this Sunday Lord's uh, chaos, it's but um, good. <laughs> lucky for me, like the music is, is like putrid. So I don't have to worry about um, like listening to problematic artists, but I am so in love with the fucking gossip and drama that went on in that scene. Everyone involved seems like really, really pathetic. Um, but people got um, killed, man. No, <laughs> <So, laughs> I'm serious. That. Like that's the thing. Like if you read like people's accounts of this shit people were trying so hard to be like true evil and not be considered posers that they went as far as to like murder gay people and burn down churches and fucking like duel each other that that wasn't born out of like a like a dedication to a cause it was because they were trying to like outdo each other in what the most like grim frostbitten acts they could commit was it's insane
2: yeah it's yeah it's uh man fuck <laughs> I, hope, I hope that movie's good because i think it's a very interesting subject matter but then again you get in the whole the whole, whole is it okay to watch the ted bundy uh documentary or whatever so uh, God, why why like anything man just <laughs> it's so hard it's it's it is it's so hard to like anything man
1: I mean, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? So Yeah. Have and, at it, it. That, and it and if we and if
2: we want to bring hope any point on this podcast is that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. So I think I think we can shut the podcast down. We've we've gotten to the logical <laughs> end
1: point. I've said it like nineteen times yeah. on air, so. yeah <laughs> We've reached our logical endpoint several times. <laughs>
3: Well, I think we need to start wrapping it up. Um Yeah. I have yeah. one more burning question for you, Ian. All How right. How did you find out about the Eword podcast?
2: Um I it, I I can't put a, a finger on it. I think it may have been something that was like retweeted into my timeline or whatever and like I mean, you see the end serenating uh you see the serenating av- avatar and it's like, "Okay. Um uh, okay, it's an Emo podcast." Like what yeah. kind of emo podcast and it's like oh okay these 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 people seem legit so and once again like this is how I find out about like emo bands and whatnot like yeah. you know people like yourself it's like this is um, these are the people who are very dedicated to the cause and you know hopefully maybe 10 years from now they'll write the 10 year anniversary piece some record like about like I don't know Stars Hollow or something like that i
0: genuinely want to do that
1: yeah,
2: yeah, uh-huh. but but it's it, it's like I think about like who are you know who are the people who were at the Algernon shows in '08 or whatever. It's like, but yeah, when I when I see you know when I see someone who's like covering this stuff with a real sense of like purpose and taste, because I mean, there's a lot of like people who are really enthusiastic about this kind of music, but the writing is like just be fucking bad to be, to be honest yeah. with you and, and, and that's tough because like a lot of times like the people who are writing about it are like maybe like super young and super inexperienced and like uh, I mean it's very easy to find like 15 really awesome writers writing about like a new um, Fleet Foxes album but like it's much harder to find people who are writing about uh, you know awake but still in bed in substantial ways and that's the thing it's like people who like like right like i read a lot of writers who i absolutely love who write about shit i don't care about and people who um you know maybe aren't the best writers but like uh have really are, are just out there finding good stuff and which it so if you guys like you know i said it's like okay these people people care uh their podcast like brings really good shit to the table yeah definitely i this is where i'm going to find like bands that I otherwise wouldn't find like anywhere else, you know?
1: So you're saying after this is over, I can definitely tweet Ian Cohen just admitted to stealing content from the E word, right?
2: <laughs> you know what? If that's, if if, if that's, what's going to get uh, the E word podcast to its like next level, uh, you know, I'll, I'll martyr myself for the cause. You know.
1: <laughs> I mean, we got, we got on your feed because we have quality tweets that's what
2: happened yeah uh yeah yeah ian cohen the fuck jerry of emo there it is <laughs> <laughs> there's a full quote just that's, steal or, some that's title, title right, yeah. Fucking there, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just stealing from reddit r backslash emo stealing from uh the e-word podcast uh, i just swoop in uh, i'm a, like fuck jerry meets drake where i just just vulture everything going <laughs> off my own Total fucking poser.org, man.
1: We're all that's just ripping the, off Soldier Boy, though. Title, right, Kyle? What? That entire quote is going to be the title, right? Kyle?
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to rewind <laughs> it and write it down shorthand just to get it. But yeah.
2: Awesome. I really hope that fits within 280 characters. <laughs> all right, y'all. Well, anyway, man. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to
1: seeing how all this goes, man. Yeah, this is going to be good. We really, really appreciate having you on. This is like a dream come true for us, for mm-hmm. sure. Awesome.
2: And it's also like a really awesome thing to be able to be on a emo podcast and talk for like an hour, like an hour and a half about like, or I guess combined like almost three hours about this stuff. And, you know, I was telling, yeah, it's um, it's really cool that people are out there like doing this stuff because like I said before, man, despite what some people may put in my mentions I no one does this to be cool man <laughs>
0: like, no,
2: <laughs> like, nobody like goes to like our, our backslash emo and like talks about white belt band because this gets them some sort of social cachet man I especially not me being the age I'm uh, in the position of the I am <laughs> you
1: why do you keep low-key calling me out <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean? Oh, because I I am the number one white belt proponent on r slash emo. Yeah,
2: but I mean, are you you doing this because, like, oh, this is going to totally advance my career as a uh, journalist?
1: I actively become less physically attractive every time I do it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, imagine, like, Yeah, well, imagine being like my age and like in my realm saying, Oh, what do you listen to? Deep breath, Indy (laughs) Rasher. And then I have to do the soft lead in before you explain what emo is. Uh, Like, I mean, I've had conversations at work where it's like, Screamo, isn't that like Slipknot? (laughs) Anyway. So yeah, that's the. But these are also eighteen-year-old people who like do not know who Bob Dylan is, <laughs> but lo- they love they love them from Brockhampton and Billie Eilish. So.